Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. This is Matt Tullis. This week on Gangway the Podcast, I talk with Michael Cruz, a staff writer on the Enterprise team at the Tampa Bay Times. Cruz recently published a three-part series titled The Last Voyage of the Bounty. It chronicled a tall wooden ship bound for St. Petersburg, Florida, as she sailed straight into Hurricane Sandy. Cruz has been recognized for his writing and reporting far too many times to list them all. Most recently, he won the Paul Hansel Award for Distinguished Achievement in Florida Journalism. He also won the American Society of News Editors Distinguished Non-Deadline Writing Award. He doesn't limit himself to just newspaper reporting, though. Cruz has also been published by ESPN, Yahoo Sports, Our State, and Men's Health magazines, among others. As usual, we've linked to many of Cruz's stories, including The Last Voyage of the Bounty, at our website. That's www.gangrythepodcast.com. We're here with Michael Cruz of the Tampa Bay Times. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Matt. Michael, first of all, I guess uh, we're here to talk about Last Voyage of the Bounty, your big story that came out earlier in November. Can you give me a description of that, uh, like a brief description of that story? Sure. So last October, October of 2012, October 29th, 2012, this this ship called the Bounty uh, tried to sail through Hurricane Sandy, and it didn't work out. And the ship used to call St. Pete home. Uh, the ship was coming to St. Pete uh, from New England, and the captain uh, lived in St. Pete. So there were a variety of uh, uh, items of local interest for us. And so when it didn't make it, when it went down, and when uh, not everybody survived, it was a national story in some sense, but it was also very much a local story for us, too, in that first, you know, 24 uh, 36-hour uh, news cycle. Um, so my job here at the at the Tampa Bay Times is not so much to cover that on a daily basis, but to look for possibilities to uh, uh, turn news items into stories, into longer projects, longer pieces of reporting, um, uh, longer stories. So I said to my editor, Bill Durier, who's the enterprise editor uh, here, I said, we should do Bounty. And, I mean, that was within the first, you know, 24 hours. And it didn't really stick at that time. Um, You know, by do Bounty, I meant, I didn't really have to explain what I meant. It was, um, you know, front to back, life and death, uh, something comprehensive and and hopefully uh, distinguishing and distinctive for the paper. It didn't really stick in the last couple months of, of 2012, but I came back from Christmas uh, from a, a brief break over the holidays, and we got together at, at our coffee shop here in St. Pete, not far uh, from the office, and I said, again, I said, we should do Bounty. <laughs> it was still on, my, still on my mind. And at that point, he said yes, and it, sort of, it started to move pretty quickly at that point. Um, uh, shortly after Bill said yes, I, I went out to lunch with... Uh, 
the managing editor, Mike Wilson, um, who's about to leave, sadly, uh, for Nate Silver's 538. But at that time, he, he, he sort of looked at me over, over lunch and, um, and said, uh, we were talking about Bounty and the possibilities, and he asked me, uh, what else are you doing this year? Um, and at that point, I, that's, that's how I understood what the paper wanted from this or saw in this, uh, the, you know, the potential and the size and the scope. And so I went to Portsmouth, Virginia, uh, for the Coast Guard hearings in the middle of February for a week and a half. And, and then it was all bounty all the time, pretty much from that point till, uh, till it ran in, uh, late October, uh, and early November over the course of, um, uh, three publishing dates, Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday, and special sections, and then, of course, also um, on TampaBay.com. I was going to ask you, and you kind of talked a little bit about this, but uh, the day that you absolutely knew that you were going to write about about the ship, you said that was early on? Well, it was early on that I, I, I knew there was interest. Mm-hmm. You know that's a different thing than knowing when, knowing when this could work. You know, work the way we wanted it to work. And I, I'm not sure that totally happened until, you know, a couple months at least into the process. Um, you know, there was some. I think like with these longer uh, stories that, that take longer to report, whether longer means uh, a month or many months, um, there's not just a you know, perpetually green light. At least this isn't the way it works for me, and this isn't the way it works for me here at the Times. It, you have to keep earning that green light, right? So um, there's there are plenty of resources committed to it, and uh, you feel backed certainly, but you need to keep earning that. So yeah, and from a week to week on a week to week basis, you know, uh, here's what I got this week, and that's pretty good. Here's what I need to get next week to to be able to report a third week, and. I mean, that's the way I look at it. I don't know if that's the way ultimately they're looking at it, but I mean, I feel like I have to justify the time and the resources that are being put into this. So um, up until maybe early May, I mean, this started in you know, early to mid-February, and up until about early May, I wasn't quite sure if I had what I needed to, to do it as well as uh, I wanted to do it and as well as they were expecting me to do it. So um, I'd say from the beginning of May to the end of May is when I made a transition from pure um, wide net reporting to actually starting to do something with it and to think very specifically about structure and to report, to continue to report. I mean, I reported till, I I was, I was on the phone with people, uh, you know, the weekend before it ran, but you're reporting in a much more targeted, much more um, uh, specific way at that point as as you go forward in the last, uh, you know, three to four months. At least that was my experience doing this. Uh, you said you started with the Coast Guard hearings. Um, can you talk a little, a little bit about that and then kind of how maybe that set you up for the rest of the reporting? Yeah, absolutely. In retrospect, it was uh, hugely helpful. They were frustrating in some ways, which I'll get into, but helpful in that all I had to do was 
go there and sit there, basically, and, and somebody else was asking the questions. I couldn't. I mean, I literally wasn't allowed to ask questions. Uh, it was a, uh, a, a, court, a ballroom, a hotel ballroom turned into a quasi-courtroom. So the questions that were being asked by the investigators from the Coast Guard and from the uh, Transportation and Safety Board um, were helpful to me. They weren't helpful necessarily in a, uh, from a story standpoint, but I could see as the, as, the, as the questions were asked of the crew, of the survivors, 14 people survived of 16 on that ship, as they were asking these questions to these 14 survivors and then also some other experts, you know, other tall ship captains and uh, Coast Guard folks, um, at the very least I could see a, a skeletal structure. It's just a skeletal chronology developed. Um, and I could see who the potential characters were. I mean, literally, some of them phoned in for their um, testimonies, but uh, more of them were there physically. So... At the very least, I could see them and I could observe them and um, identify who seemed to be kind of the most interesting, who seemed to be the chattiest, who might be the most likely to talk to me. Uh, how am I going to prioritize this reporting, you know, af- effective immediately? I mean, the minute that the hearings stop. Uh, Did you talk to when, any of them um, outside those hearings, like right while they were happening? I did, the ones who would who would talk to me. I mean, here's the thing, and this is one reason it was one reason, not the only reason, but one reason this was uh, an extremely challenging reporting endeavor for me. None of them wanted to talk to me. I mean, they all had their reasons to not want to talk to me, ranging from uh, lingering, understandable, emotional and psychological trauma from having lived through a near-death experience to not insignificant, for some of them, not insignificant potential legal ramifications. So I had to kind of assess the playing field. And here would be a good time to mention, too, that I certainly wasn't the only one there trying to do that. Um, Immediately evident was the competition that I would be up against to do this story well. Um, there were two people there who were writing books. One of them's come out already, and one of them's coming out in the spring. Uh, there was somebody there from CNN.com. A story had already run in Outside Magazine. A story had already run in Popular Mechanics. So this was far from an exclusive, right? And so, you know, the competition for me was interesting because the people who were writing books, their books were going to come out um, later than my story, but they were reporting at the same time I was reporting, and we were vying for the same people, and those people didn't want to talk to any of us. So I did talk to some of those, some of the crew in the hallways, in elevators, in that hotel in Portsmouth, Virginia, but it was not, hey, tomorrow can we meet? Can I, can I, uh, you know, can I pick your brain before you get back on your plane? It was, hello, here's, uh, here's who I am, here's what I'm trying to do, here's what I'm trying to do, here's how what I'm trying to do is different from what others might be trying to do, um, here's my card, I'm not in a rush. I was in a little bit of a rush, but not in a rush. You know, I don't, I don't need you right now, think about it. No pressure, even though there's pressure on me. Um, 
And that's the extent to which I talk to some of them there. And I'm not sure how helpful that was, but it couldn't have hurt, you know, when they started hearing from me <laughs> um, in more in more substantial ways, you know, after the hearings. Um, so it was a challenge to get uh, to get anybody. And I eventually talked to nine of them uh, of the 14, uh, six of them on the record. So and I thought that was pretty good. I mean, some of them just weren't going to talk um, to anybody. So that required me that required me um, to use kind of every tool in my in my toolkit to uh, convince them that talking to me was uh, something that they should do. Yeah, the the legal ramifications is one thing I think, and sometimes that's out of the reporter's control. If somebody is worried about that, they are not going to talk no matter what. But dealing with people who are you know traumatized by something. Sometimes they will talk, but it takes some work to get them to talk. And, like, how did you kind of approach them and kind of convince them that, that they could talk with you? I mean, a few things that aren't, that aren't uh, specific to this story. Um, patience, um, sincerity and authenticity, uh, transparency um, that I think ultimately people respect and can see even if they're dealing with, um, with their issues. Um, an acknowledgement from me that they're dealing with these issues. Um, you know, I, to get the first crew member to talk to me, he's a guy that I had identified in Portsmouth as a, as a possibility, as more of a possibility than some of the others I thought. He was the oldest member of the crew, 66 at the time, a guy by the name of Doug Font. And he seemed to be kind of the, uh, you know, the lovable and loved uncle, in a way, of the largely younger crew, much younger crew. And so I figured not only would he maybe be most likely to talk to me, but he could help me with others. You know, if I had Doug... I have that much more of a chance with some of the others. So I prioritize Doug. To get Doug, I um, called him, explained again what I was trying to do, told him that um, I would come to meet with him with no obligation on his end. I'm like, I would not have a notebook. Nothing would be on the record. I just want you to see me, and I just want you to hear me out and suss me out. And so he was going to be in Connecticut, in New London, Connecticut, of all places, where the, where the bounty had, had, had left from on its fateful voyage, to get on a different ship. And he was going to be there for like an hour. <laughs> so I met him at the train station there. I mean, I flew to Providence, and I drove to New London. And I was doing some other things up there, too, for this story, but basically I went up there to meet with Doug. And this was in, I don't know, mid-March. And so I met with Doug. I picked him up at the train station in my rental car. I drove him to his ship across town. And then we sat in the rental car and talked. And this was all probably 30 minutes. And at the end of those 30 minutes, he said, okay, uh, you can come to Oakland to meet with me. He lives in Oakland, California. And so... 
I did some other things up there too, but then I basically, after a few days, I flew back to Florida and I um, made arrangements to go to Oakland. And so when I went to Oakland is when the actual, you know, um, reporting happened. Doug helped me get to the engineer, a guy by the name of Chris Barksdale. And those two sort of started a... Uh, uh, started the ball rolling, you know, where it was now, now somebody who talks to me isn't going to be the first person, isn't going to break the seal. And I think that made it okay for some of the others. And that's not to say that they were easy. I mean, everybody was a kind of a struggle uh, in their own right. Um, there was one young woman, is one young woman named Jessica Hewitt, and she agreed to meet with me on a separate trip to New England. We were going to meet in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And that morning, she Facebook messaged me and said, I just can't do it. And so I was in New England that trip for like two weeks. And I basically um, chased her uh, in a <laughs> hopefully non-stalkerish way. But... And I was doing other things. I mean, I had so many things to tick off my list of things that I needed to accomplish, things I, I needed to uh, report, places I needed to be in New England. Um, but she was bouncing around New England, too. And because we were Facebook friends and because we were texting and because we were Facebook messaging, I knew where she was. And so finally, toward the end of that trip, I met with her in Mystic, Connecticut. But I got better stuff from her a few months later over Facebook message. And that was because I think she, she had done some healing. She, she was ready, and she wasn't quite ready in late April and early May when we were sort of doing that strange uh, reportorial dance around New England. Um, so this is a very long-winded way of saying um, I think the most important thing is time. You know, you're operating on their schedule, and if they want to talk, I'm available always for you to talk, but I can't make you talk right now. Um, but then to be ready for when they when they do want to talk. And also, I was very cognizant talking to uh, everybody, not just the crew members, but former crew members. I mean, there are hundreds of people who sailed on the bounty and are part of this kind of loose de facto, quote-unquote, bounty family. And while I'm trying to get crew members who were on the ship on October 29th, while I'm trying to convince them to talk to me, I'm talking to dozens of these former crew members. They're sort of in one of those outer circles. and But they know all these people, right? And so I was very aware in talking to those folks that they were talking to the people who were on the ship at the time of the sinking. And that if those conversations went well, and if they came away with a good feeling about what I was doing, and that I was trying to do this in a more comprehensive, more interesting, more curious, less prosecutorial way, then that word would trickle back. And I started hearing from uh, some crew and some former crew that that was the word that was developing within that kind of sub-community, the Bounty family. So that was good. That meant that, meant that I was getting a little bit closer to, um, uh, to the access that I needed. It seems like the... T- time that it takes to do this type of reporting and to generate those relationships is hugely important. And that can only happen, I think, at a publication where you have tremendous support. Can you talk about what it is about the Tampa Bay Times that, 
I guess, values that type of storytelling? It's absolutely true. I mean, this could not be done, I think, in any other way. I mean, if I were doing this uh, from a freelance, in a freelance way for, for some other publication, there is no way. I mean, I couldn't eat. There, there, um, there is and must be, to do this kind of work, a, um, an abiding support for it. And not just financial, time uh, and people who are back at the ranch, so to speak, who have your back and are um, and are not panicking if you've spent six weeks on something and you're still sort of circling around uh, what may or may not be the crux of a story. And so this um, this this story, the the bounty story, was unusual. It was a little bit unprecedented, at least for me. I mean, it's the longest I've spent. Um, on a singular story without really doing anything else uh, in, in the meantime. But we do, I mean, paper-wide, we do um, make decisions on uh, uh, stories like this to spend the amount of time and money they take. Why? Um, it is, at this point, it has been going on here long enough to where it's uh, now in the DNA of the place and goes beyond, I think, I hope, uh, any particular personnel even. So, for instance, just to speak for myself, I mean, I've, I've been here at the paper uh, for eight plus years at this point, and I wanted to come here. I was at the Times Herald Record in New York State, and I wanted to come here because I wanted to do the kind of work that I saw Lane DeGregory doing. And I wanted to do the kind of work that I saw Kelly Benham doing and that I saw Tom French doing. And I wanted to do the kind of work that other people had done here before uh, moving on. Uh, Rick Bragg, David Finkel, Ann Hall, David Barstow, Monica Davey, Jeffrey Gettleman. I mean, people who either won Pulitzers here or went on to win Pulitzers elsewhere, right? So there was something about the kind of work that they were doing that I wanted to do. And I was doing some sort of, you know, or trying to do some sort of baby version of it at the Times Herald Record. And so then you get here and uh, work your way uh, into a seat where this kind of work is expected. And that's because of editors like Bill Durier and editors like Mike Wilson and right up to the top, you know, Neil Brown, the editor of the paper, Paul Tash, the publisher of the paper, of the, of the Times Publishing Company, they think it's important. They value it. They see it as one of the, of the things that the Times does, still does, even in this, you know, uh, anxious era of transition. Uh, they see this line of work as one of the things that hopefully distinguishes the Times from other regional newspapers. You know, the Times is the biggest paper in Florida and the biggest paper in the Southeast. I mean, from the Washington Post to uh, to Key West, uh, the side of the Mississippi. So there's still some, you know, there's still some oomph to it. Um, but there are plenty of papers that are as big <laughs> or bigger that don't do this kind of work. I don't know why they don't. Um, it's expensive. 
that, well, this, this, the simple, probably too simple answer is we do it because we've done it. And um, some of the, the personnel here have done it, do it. You know, my cubicle pod is me, uh, Ben Montgomery, Lane Gregory, and Leonore LaPeter Anton. Um, you know, <laughs> it almost seems unfair. Well, I do. I do it because uh, I do it in that cubicle pod. Because if I don't do it, I will feel um, like I'm letting them down. I mean, I see the work that they do, and uh, it's a great motivator. I mean, Leonora's had a great run of late and has had some really good stories. And and you know, stories come and go. The bounty, the bounty shine is uh, is is gone, and you know. Uh, the pressure's on again to uh, to do something as good as what Leonor just put in the paper. I mean, that's a that's a powerful motivator, and I don't think I don't think that exists at too many places. And it's one reason that one reason I think that, that you know me and Ben and Lane and Leonor are still here because we get uh, we get egged on and motivated uh, and encouraged um, just sitting there um, and. Uh, talking about stories and seeing what, what the others are, are working on and putting together. I mean, it really is a, is a great motivator. And it's not just the cubicle pod, right? I mean, the, 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 the uh, again, I mean, it's almost, uh, it's almost amazing to me that uh, in this moment of, as I said, you know, great anxiety about how it works, uh, not just newspapers, but, you know, media, this, this, this shifting, uh, this shifting unsettled world where, uh, you know, what is an ad, and what does an ad pay, and how do you, and and who should pay for the work is is kind of constantly changing and never not a source of concern. Uh, we have, you know, far from just us four at this paper, we've got people like uh, John Cox. You've had him on here, John Cox, Peter Jameson, uh, Drew Harwell. Um, you know, uh, younger yet, people like Alex Orlando. I mean, shoot, the interns that come through here are sometimes stunningly good. Um, you know, there's no shortage of kind of talent. Lisa Gardner, I mean, every, every three weeks I'm reminded when she puts something on 1A and it's, and it's amazing. Uh, I mean, to have that sort of, um, that flow of that uh, caliber of work is, um, you know, a powerful, uh, a powerful motivator. Going back to the story, did did the yeah. length of the piece and and I guess the breadth of it affect your how did it affect your reporting and then ultimately the writing process? Because this is the biggest thing you've done, right? Yeah, it's the biggest thing I've done, uh, in by a wide margin, and I I, I think it's I think it's um, <laughs> to be frank, I think it's the best thing I've done. I mean, ultimately, obviously, I don't get to make that determination. The readers do, but um, it, it it felt like that to me, and because I know I know what went into it, and I know how hard it was, and I know how catastrophically bad it could have been. <laughs> so, you know, how did how did the length how did the length influence how I went about it? Interesting. Um, I have a very particular process and some would say peculiar process how I uh, how I go from you know conception to completion uh, idea to uh, publishing date and 
I stuck to my process. I mean, nothing fundamentally important to my process changed. And yet, it was stretched in a way that it had never been stretched before. Because we made a decision to run it in three parts as opposed to, you know, one one twenty three thousand word story. It was three stories. There was three, you know, three pieces that added up to that. You know, we made that decision three parts as opposed to one part or five parts or seven parts. But three parts meant meant three separate arcs that added up to one arc. I mean, the, the story is the story, but then you've got these these three stories that add up to that story. So that 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 in of itself was a challenge and not something I had done, certainly certainly to this extent. And my structuring process, which I spend a lot of time on, I mean, I structure, I structure far, far, far longer than I write. And so there was a great deal of faith involved in my continuing to do what I do to structure, but oh, but but again, stretched over a, uh, a much longer arc, and therefore, it felt to me as I was doing that like the tightrope, which is always there, but it felt like this tightrope was higher and thinner and more taut than it had ever been, and so if I fell that was going to be a long, long way down. So there was a, certainly for me, a kind of pressure that I had never felt putting a story together. Um, And so when it did come together, you know, in draft form, when I sent day one, draft one to Bill, and it worked, and it was good. It was something we could work with, and then some. There was a, I mean, just a, a humongous feeling of relief more than anything that, you know, the process and how I do this, at least how I do it right now, worked. It didn't fail me because if it had failed me, then we're then we're then we're in absolute damage control because the clock is ticking, right? Um, so, you know, I'd be glad to sort of get into the nitty gritty if you want to hear about it. But, you know, generally speaking, it just was, it just, everything was, everything I do, every piece of every story I do was just ramped up exponentially, uh, to make this work. And now, so that, you know, plenty of people have done this. I don't mean to say that this is like the hardest thing ever because plenty of people have done this, but I hadn't. So, you know, I didn't know if it would work. I mean, I've done stories that are a thousand words, three thousand words, five thousand words, seven thousand words, ten thousand words. I know going into those stories now that they can work because they have worked. I didn't know that with this, right. <laughs> which is so frightening. You know, because you because you 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 think. You, you think, at least I think, I thought, is this, is, this, is this where I find, is this where I hit my ceiling? 
I mean, is this where I, is this where I knock my head on my ceiling? Um, and then when you don't, you know, your ceiling gets a little bit higher. And I think that's why, you know, there's this, like, there was this mixture. I mean, I had a long way to go, but when that first draft of the first day came out and it came out fine, it came out okay, there was this, you know, this really, you know, mixture, this, this feeling of, of, uh, of just, you know, such relief that uh, there was more, there was more, there was more meadow in which to play, you know? Um, That's uh no, I totally understand that feeling. The first time I wrote a 5,000 word piece, I was like, I don't know if I can do this. Um, right. But you somehow do it. So can you, when you did, do it and then it all opens up again. Right. And then, and then you can, uh, you can, you can keep going. I mean, that's the thing you get to, a, you get to a place and uh, you didn't know you could get there. And then once you get there, uh, the place you're trying to get to changes in a good way. Yeah, yeah. When was the decision made? Uh, like, how? Why three parts? Can you talk a little bit about that? Definitely. So the first thing we tried was five, and we—that means me and Bill—we um, we got a room, an empty room, on the sixth floor of the Times Building here in St. Pete, uh, the main office here in St. Pete, and. Um, you know, hung kind of easel-sized uh, white paper uh, around the room, and um, and structured it, and that and tried to structure it, uh, tried to structure it in five. And this wasn't, you know, we didn't just walk in there and say, okay, uh, you know, we didn't start at zero in that room. We had we had been talking about how to structure this. I mean, almost from the get-go, I'm thinking about structure you know, very, very early in the reporting process. Um, but we quickly decided that five wasn't right, primarily because the first of those five parts didn't get you nearly close enough to near enough danger to have the appropriate amount of tension to get the reader to part two. Um, I needed the ship to be feeling the storm at the end of part one, I thought, Bill thought, to justify part two. So once we pretty quickly scrapped the idea of five, we, um, we divided that chronology, in essence, uh, into uh, three instead. And that worked better because the ship um, at the end of day one is sort of into, 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 the, into the mess. Uh, that's going to get much, much worse, but far enough into the mess to, um, to have the reader uh, need to know what happens next. Um, Did you know anything about sailing going into the story? Not really. Um, not really. I, you know, pretty early on, in February, March, April, I, and throughout, but definitely uh, very much early on, I read um, a lot of um, sea stories <laughs> just to kind of get the, um, get the language. I ordered, uh, you know, books that confuse the Amazon robots about um, my interest in sailing. Um, you know, I ordered a 
I ordered a book that was printed originally in the 1700s, basically a tutorial on how to sail a square rig, square rigger, Um, you know, terms, um, uh, extensive glossary and words that aren't even used now, um, just to kind of jam all that stuff into my head as I um, thought this story through, and frankly, so I could keep up in conversation with the people I needed to talk to for this story, because (laughs) it was uh, immediately evident to me when I sat there in that ballroom in Portsmouth, Virginia, that I couldn't quite picture what they were saying, because there is something uh, almost like a foreign language um, at work around people who sail, especially people who sail these more antiquated um, sorts of ships. So plenty of things that were said those first few days in Portsmouth, I just didn't understand. I mean, I just, I just had to write, I just had to write down sounds almost <laughs> in my notebook and then, uh, and then go back and, um, determine what actually they had said. Um, I mean, even just, even just names of sales, where's that sail on the ship? It could be anywhere, you know? And so, um, and I also, I also read a book called Tall Ships Down, which almost was a book, you know, written specifically for this in retrospect. Um, it was a a book of five case studies of earlier tall ships that had, uh, that had gone down in, you know, storms, rogue waves, et cetera. And, and why, uh, written by a, professor now at Maine Maritime Academy. Uh, I, I met with him up there at his house in Maine. But before that, I read it. And I only read that book because uh, Doug, in the rental car, you know, in New London, Connecticut, one of the first things I did said, have you read Tall Ships Down? And he asked me that because, I don't know, I guess because he, he was listening to what I was asking and what I wanted to do with the story. And he said, have you read Tall Ships Down? So who wrote it? So it cost the Times like 80 bucks off Amazon used, but it was worth it. And so, you know, uh, this, is, I, this, this, is, this is the case in every story, right? I mean, you know, my, my role here is as a generalist, so I don't have a, I don't have a beat. And uh, so every story is its own little, uh, you know, college course. It's almost how I look at it. And I do all the normal stuff, Google, blah, 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 Nexus, everything that's been written about uh, – um, this subject or this person, but I also, um, you know, buy a handful of books if available, if applicable, uh, and, and read those too, just to kind of, uh, start to, mm, you know, create, uh, on the run a, uh, a syllabus for, um, for this, you know, for a particular story I'm working on. Uh, you talk a lot about the importance of stories, uh, and you did that, that TEDx talk, uh, on that subject too. For a journalist, I think obviously the key is finding those stories because we're not telling our own stories um, mm-hmm. oftentimes. How do, you, how do you find the stories that you find? Uh, I wish there was a foolproof way. Um, I, think, I think I find stories. The way I found stories has changed over, um, over the course of my time uh, in newspapers and certainly in my time as a journalist. Um, Right now, I find stories by reading. Um, 
more than even before. Um, I read our own, I read my paper, um, you know, looking for uh, articles, briefs that um, hint at in some way a much larger piece. Um, you know, I, you mentioned that TEDx talk, uh, and I think in that talk I said something like, you know, most of the things that run in newspapers are either beginnings or endings. And my job is to, you know, find that beginning and stick with it until there's an end or see that ending and report back to the beginning. And that's the beginning of or the possibility of a story, you know, beginning, middle and end, conflict resolution, rise and fall, you know, story, what story has been forever and will be forever. And so I read the Times looking for those ins, those entry points, and I read a lot of other things, too. Uh, you know, if I'm around the state reporting some story, I pick up newspapers as I go, and I read those newspapers the same way. I subscribe to a couple dozen magazines. I read them. Uh, I read those magazines, um, you know, partly just because I, I like to read and I like, um, I like to see what else is out there and I like to learn things, but also I'm scanning. I'm always, I can't help scanning for stories. I mean, that's more along the lines of probably of, uh, you know, freelance possibilities, uh, things I can pitch that go uh, well beyond kind of a more Florida-centric audience. But, um, and then of course there's just the uh, the reality of, of living um, a consciously or subconsciously curious life where, um, you know, my wife knows somebody from my stepdaughter's school, and that person said something to my wife, and then my wife said something, and that was kind of interesting, and I wonder if something's there, you know? Um, uh, there are all sorts of ways. I mean, there, there's never, you know, this, this, the problem is not uh, finding the stories. The problem is making the right decisions. Uh, on which stories to uh, start to pursue, which stories to open, which stories to devote uh, a week to, two weeks, three weeks, three months. Um, you know, because you you have 52 weeks in a year in, <laughs> and you have, you know, only so many hours in a day. And so um, you want to minimize the, uh, you know, amount of time spent in stories that either just don't pan out or the stories that just, you know, they run and they're just okay. Uh, they just didn't elevate for whatever reason. Um, you mentioned um, looking at magazines for even freelance stuff. Uh, my question is, how do you have time to freelance? Um, so right now I'm, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm, working, I'm working on a piece right now for Charlotte Magazine. I'm working on a piece right now for Our State Magazine in North Carolina. Uh, I'm working on a piece for Grantland. Uh, I just had a piece run in the Davidson Journal, <laughs> the alumni <laughs> mag at Davidson, where I, uh, it, you know, where I went to school. I have a piece running next year in Outside Magazine, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess this, you know, how I do it is uh, hours. I hours that uh, I create that wouldn't exist if I didn't create them. So um, you know, there's a uh, local coffee shop here in St. Pete uh, that I frequent, but it opens at 7, and the Starbucks 
which is actually closer to my house, opens at 5. And so there are mornings where I show up at the Starbucks and the, you know, the, the, uh, the papers, the stacks of papers are still outside. And so I, I bring them in. And I work there from you know, 5 to 7 or 7.30. And then I go home and I say hello to, uh, <laughs> say hello to the people who live in my house. And I walk my dog and then I take a shower and I come to work. You know, I come to the I come to the office in the Times, um, and that's not every morning, but uh, that's frankly more mornings than um, than I I would like, um, because there's just no other way. I mean, this is this is my this is my little corner of um, of our new world, right? Uh, the the uh, quote unquote gig economy. Um, what work? Uh, is in the 21st century um, where, uh, you know, what I do from uh, eight to six is not, um, is not, uh, is not quite enough. And so, um, you know, um, what uh, you get for doing work and doing work well is the opportunity to do more work. <laughs> and I'll be honest, I wish, I wish there was a way to make ends meet and to do what I want to do without getting up at an hour that starts with four. <laughs> but I don't know any other way. So I don't know how long this is, like you know, sort of a sustainable thing, right. but um, we'll see. Well, the two pieces you had in Our State magazine last uh, in 2012 were fantastic, um, and uh, you know, as a reader, I certainly appreciate you publishing it in multiple places. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, you know, this, there's there's something uh, there's something in it for me, right? I mean, I I want to uh, I want to freelance as much as I can to, you know, quote-unquote, grow my brand, whatever that is and whatever that means. But I, I want more people to read my work. I want more people to know my work. But also, I do it uh, because I have to. I mean, I, in, in you know, flusher times, uh, that, is, that is my family's cushion. That's how I give, give us a little breathing room. And in leaner times, that's how I make it work. And so... Hopefully, um, there comes a day when I don't have to do that as much. But for now, uh, it's better to have too much work than not enough. And the biggest problem is time. I mean, there's only so much time, and you do have to sleep. I mean, I sort of think of seven hours of sleep a night as part of my work schedule, because if I don't get that, uh, things start to fall apart. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, uh, we'll see. We'll see how the, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> well, Michael, it's been great talking with you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to ramble, Matt. And it's nice to talk to one of the founders from Gangry dot com, which is kind of the namesake for the podcast as well. So, <laughs> right, uh, you know, Ben Ben deserves the uh, lion's share of the credit, but uh, I suppose I was there at the uh, you know at the beginning of. Uh, of the blog. Well, and at some point in time, Ben will be on the podcast, and uh, maybe when his book comes out in April, possibly. Oh yeah, I'll let him know.
No. So yeah, tell them to tell them to uh, prepare. So, um, but uh, Michael, will. thanks so much. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you, man. I've been talking with Michael Cruz. He's a staff writer on the Enterprise team at the Tampa Bay Times. He recently published the three-part series, The Last Voyage of the Bounty. We've linked to the story on our website, www.gangrythepodcast.com. You can download Gangry the Podcast on iTunes for free. Just go to the iTunes store and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is now available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter at Gangry Podcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University and is a production of the Journalism and Digital Media Department. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.